You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, who needs a Kleenex? That, that kind of gets us, uh, all of us. And if that doesn't, like, that didn't do something to you at all, we have an EKG machine out there, and we're going to check you out. When you see that, uh, when you see that groom's face, uh, when he sees the bride for the first time, and something happens to him, uh, that really kind of gets to us. And th- this thing on his face that says there's absolutely nothing else in the world but her. Um, why does that move us? Why does that affect us? Let me tell you why. It's because you and I were wired by our creator to know that that was actually just a shadow of the love that it represents. That was just kind of a glimpse of the love that it's reflecting, of, of what it's supposed to represent. Because while we see marriage begin, and that really like excites us, you know, it actually moves us even more to see marriage continue, to see it persevere. And this morning, we're going to move on in Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul is going to not only talk about marriage He's going to be very specific over what marriage should look like and why. In fact, he's going to give us a description of a spirit-filled marriage. So if you would join me in Ephesians chapter 5, we're actually going to start with verse 15. We read that verse last week, but that's okay. We want to kind of flow into this with the context. Ephesians 5.15 Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In verse 18, Paul says something worth us paying attention to. He says, don't get drunk. That's, and he equates it to witchcraft. He equates it to you and I being controlled by something outside of ourselves. And that's not for us. But instead, what does he say? Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying that nothing in this world should have control over you or me other than the Holy Spirit. And when we are filled by and when we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, there's evidence of it. Look at what Paul says the evidence is, verses 19 through 21. He says that when that happens, when we're filled by the Spirit, uh, that we will encourage one another with our individual and our corporate worship. 
See, you and I standing in this room this morning singing praise to God, your praise to God should be an encouragement to me, and my praise to God should be an encouragement to you, and we should be mutually edifying and building each other up as we're worshiping the Lord. Because, you know, this is not just some concert and we're singing along with the song with our lighter in the air because we know the words. Um, We are singing praise to God for who he is and what he's done. Paul says that we will live lives of visible and tangible thanksgiving and praise to God as well. And then he goes on and he says that when we are filled and controlled by the Spirit, we will submit to one another. We will put one another first because Christ loved us this way. Tony Merida in his commentary on Ephesians says the result of the Spirit's work in our lives is renewed worship and renewed relationships. And I think that that's an accurate statement. Let me go a little bit further with it. A Spirit-filled believer, which there shouldn't really be any other kind, but a Spirit-filled believer is someone who seeks to live in right relationship to God and in right relationship with other believers within the community of the church. Now, this entire passage, every verse that we just read and every verse that we're about to read, they are all centered in and anchored to what Paul says in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So at this point, Paul keeps going. Join me in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul comes out of this and he begins very specifically with wives. And he says, submit to your husband as to the Lord. This verse is what we would not call culturally popular. All right. And we pretty much the elephant in the room. We all know the reason for it. All right. Um, But let's talk about there. There are multiple reasons why maybe we don't totally get or jive with or understand what Paul is saying here, wives submit to your husband. First thing is sometimes maybe we don't understand that he followed that up with as to the Lord, okay? 
that he's saying that as we bring ourselves underneath the Lord, this is the same thing we ought to do here. But now the bigger reason, I think, is that a lot of people understand or don't properly understand what does Paul mean by the word submit? I think that we just naturally assume when we hear the word submit in our culture, that means that I'm supposed to like do what somebody tells me and that I'm just kind of under their authority. That's not a a correct understanding. The Greek word that's used all throughout the New Testament means to place or arrange something, someone, to place or arrange myself underneath. So for instance, if, if you have a job and you have a boss and you and your boss, you really like each other. Um, you're on the same team, you're on the same, theoretically on the same page, you've got the same vision and mission, but as the boss and as the employee, you have placed yourself underneath their authority, their guidance, their leadership, okay? That doesn't mean you're their slave, that doesn't mean they push you around, they boss you around, but somebody's got to lead what's going on. That means to submit, But we also fail to recognize this, I think, because, again, we don't understand that all of this is in the context of verse 21 of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, of this idea of mutual submission, that we are always putting one another first. Verse 22 is actually a continuation of verse 21. So you could read it like this, submit to one another out of reverence for for Christ, wives to your husbands, as to the Lord. And the idea of submission, this is not something that Paul just brings up here to the Ephesians. Um, I've given you there in your sermon notes, multiple other, and, and it's not limited to these verses, but there are multiple other scriptures there where this idea of submission in the home is talked about. And I would encourage you to look through those. But now let me say this. This is very significant. The only relationship that the scriptures teach is a reflection on any level of Christ and the church is marriage. The relationship between a husband and a wife. That's the only relationship that God teaches us is somehow a reflection of the relationship of Christ and the church. So understanding this, is it any wonder that the enemy as, is hard at work attacking this relationship? Uh, the enemy is attacking marriage on the level of he wants to attack yours. The enemy is attacking it in terms of in our culture, the whole idea of marriage is being attacked. But now I want to make sure that you and I don't get things out of order here. Don't be the one to mistake that right now we are in a culture war over marriage. Is there a war over marriage in our culture? Yes, there is. But it is not first and foremost a cultural war going on. It is a spiritual war. Because it is the enemy that desires more than anyone or anything to bring marriage down. Not just the idea of marriage, but he wants to bring your marriage down. And the number one way that Satan has attacked this is through attacking this very word, 
submit. And you want to know how Satan attacks this. First of all, Satan doesn't shout. He whispers. And here's what Satan whispers. Forget submission. You deserve equality. And I know that right now you could be thinking, well, I mean, aren't we all equal? Well, yes, but not in the terms that our culture defines it. And again, make no mistake, our culture defines it a certain way because that's how the enemy defines it. But let's pull the mask off and expose equality for just a minute. Our society demands equality, right? But here's the thing with equality. There's still a battle that goes on over rights when it comes to the issue of equality. Like even if, if I bring three of you up on the stage and uh, we say we're all equal and we're going to live in this little world that, that we've got, you know, at some point there's still going to be a war over what does equal mean and what am I entitled to and you entitled to, what are your rights, what are my rights? Equality can actually exist without love. Are you aware of this? Uh, We see it all the time. And and just to be honest with you, for those of you who have lived as long as I have or even longer, the thing that we reflect on as the American dream where everything, everybody loved each other and all that. Oh, no, that's not the way it was. Everybody just tolerated everybody else. When when equality is the basis of, for what we're doing and why. You can actually have a group of Christians who demand equality with one another but aren't really living in Christian community. Equality is rooted in the idea of entitlement and fairness. And I hope that by now you are learning that the idea of fairness is an illusion. What does that even mean? And so that is why the Apostle Paul says, hey, hey, Ephesians, hey, the brook, listen, I've got something way better, way better. Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. You remember how radically Jesus loved you and gave himself for you and laid his life down for you? Well, do that with one another. See, what mutual submission does, it's much, much stronger, much, much better than equality because mutual submission means we both surrender and lay down our rights for the sake of one another. Mutual submission is actually love in action. The NIV Life Application Commentary, the guy who wrote it, his name is Klein Snodgrass. Klein is a smart fella, but I'm glad I'm Brian Mayfield and he's Klein Snodgrass. But listen to what Klein said about this. Mutual submission will not allow us to promote ourselves and our own interest. But now don't mistake this. Neither does it make us doormats to be used by others. Legitimate submission cannot be coerced. And that last statement is very, very important because see, You can pull 10 of us aside and you can demand that we at least abide by you're all equal, okay? You're all going to get 10 green beans. You're all getting half a pork chop, all right? And if you're good and you eat all that, you get a slice of apple pie and we will measure it all out equal. 
okay? You, we can demand that all 10 of you abide by this idea of equality, but we can't force or coerce anyone to submit to each other. That has to be my decision, that I'm going to put you first. Let me give you my translation of all of this. Equality tells me to fight for me. But you see, mutual submission inspires me to fight for you. Equality says, Brian, you deserve what he gets. You should stand up for yourself. Mutual submission says, you know, I don't know that I actually deserve anything. And so I'm going to give you mine. Mutual submission really can only be embraced and lived out through the Spirit. So now understanding this, we go back to what Paul says. And we begin to understand that the wife is a living picture of the church toward Jesus Christ. That Paul is saying, wives, when you submit to your husband, you are living out for the lost world what it looks like for the church to place themselves under the Lord Jesus Christ. The wife is called to put herself under her husband. But that husband is a husband who has laid down his life for his wife. You know, hopefully there's not a husband in this room that would not say, I would die for my wife. I would jump in front of a car, a bullet, whatever. God give me the cancer, not her, whatever. Whatever it may be. And Paul is saying, look, if you would literally lay down your life for your wife, understand that spiritually you are to lay down your life for your wife. And this is the point where if a self-serving or self-centered husband wanted to maybe read Ephesians 5 to try and, you know, coerce the situation or present a picture that's not really there, this is where you get a bucket of ice over your head or a smack to the face. Because the, the Apostle Paul, who let's remember is not married and chose to be single, is saying to you and I as husbands, Don't think for a moment that your wife's submission is just about your authority or something here. This is about you representing Jesus. So, the the, the scripture clearly paints this picture of man and woman, of husband and wife, yes, having equal value, but having differing roles within a marriage. Andreas Kostenberger wrote this book called God, Marriage, and Family, and it's really good. And in it, he says this, while some may view submitting to one's husband's authority as something negative, a more accurate way of looking at marital roles is to understand that wives are called to follow their husband's loving leadership. A great picture of this for me is to think about a dance, Um, Maybe think about a slow dance. If if you're going to have a nice dance, David and Nancy down here, they dance and they're really good. And I'm kind of jealous, but we won't get into that. Uh, If you're going to dance, 
How many people do you got to have? You have to have two, right? Now, you have to have someone that's going to lead. Because if you don't, if both people are trying to lead, and this is what's happening at this point when my daughter and I, every time we dance at a wedding reception or something, Libby's still trying to lead. Well, somebody almost gets an arm out of socket or a, a toe stepped on. But then on the other side, if you have two people trying to follow, heaven help us all. I mean, that's like really miserable to watch. I mean, just, uh, I, I, don't, I don't really know how that works. You got to have someone leading. You have to have someone following. Okay, so neither person is, is more important, right? They both have to be there, but someone has to lead. Application. God has called the husband to lead. And so what does that look like? Well, interestingly enough, Paul actually never uses the word lead. He uses this other word and he uses it over and over and over and over and over. His word is love. Love. Husbands. We are not on any level to rule over our wives, but to lovingly lead them. Our leadership must reflect Jesus, who, if you'll remember, well, what did Jesus' loving leadership look like? Well, Jesus, the night before he died, got down on his hands and knees, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. And before we think, well, yeah, hey, that's, that's, that wouldn't be that hard. I mean, that'd be pretty good. Remember that he, knew that he knew that one of those disciples was about to leave the room and betray him. Another one that he was closest to of all of them. He knew he's going to deny me. But Jesus still got down on his hands and knees and washed their stinky, dirty, grotesque feet. And Jesus says, if you want to love and you want to lead This is what it looks like. That love, it can't be rooted in anything natural. I'm going to tell you something. There is nothing natural in me when I wake up any morning that says, I'm going to wash some people's feet today because I'm just that kind of guy. No, I'm not that kind of guy. When I wake up in the morning, I'm just thinking you should wash my feet. There's nothing natural about this love. This love that Jesus is talking about, that he lived out, that Paul is talking about, it cannot be rooted in our affections or in infatuation. Why not? Well, because if you think for about this long, you'll know your affections and infatuations, they're like waves on the ocean. Whoop, whoop. I mean, they they go up, they go down, they go up and down. This love can't be confined to or defined by our feelings or our attitudes either. Why not? Same deal. Our feelings and our attitudes are like a leaf in the wind in Kansas. Everywhere. Can't catch that sucker. So where do we center? Where do we anchor? Where do we find this love? Well, let me tell you. This love that Paul is describing that a husband is to love his wife with, that love can only be rooted in and is only a direct reflection and outpouring of my and your discipleship to Jesus Christ. 
the level at which I love my wife will only be the level to which I am following Jesus. So husbands, a question to ponder this morning Is my wife, is your wife, is my wife more like Christ because of her marriage to me? Or is my wife following, pursuing more like Jesus in spite of her marriage to me? We know what the answer is supposed to be. But I would encourage you this morning to prayerfully think through this. Because as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am set apart for holiness. Jesus Christ has set me apart. And so, husband, I would ask you this morning, is the greatest desire in your life and in your marriage for your wife that in everything, if you look back here at what the Apostle Paul says... Let's read here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Is that your desire for your wife? That in everything she might be holy. culture tries to influence us that that's not to be my priority. There's an old saying, and you've probably heard it before. I've heard it plenty of times. I don't know how long it's been around, but you know the saying, if mama ain't happy, then nobody's happy. Well, so, okay, I get what that means. And let me just acknowledge this. If like this Tuesday, you know, you come in from work, husband, and there's clothing flying from the fan, and your kids are running around the house screaming at each other, and the dogs are chasing them with mud on their paws, and there's laundry falling out of all the laundry baskets, and spaghetti sauce is bubbling out on the stove, and you walk in, and your wife looks like she is going to blow. And you come in and you just lovingly give her a kiss. How's it going today, honey? And you go to the fridge and you get your Diet Dr. Pepper and crack it open and go sit down in your recliner and turn on Sports Center. What you deserve is for her to get a rolling pin and smack you upside the head because you have attained a new level of idiocy. What I am telling you this morning and the apostle Paul has shared in Ephesians, we're not even close to being there. You just need a brain. (laughs) And, And I know that the picture I painted, oh, that's silly. But see, we don't go to that level. It's usually just more subtle. Like, well, she didn't ask me to do anything. Why would she? But see, let me tell you the poison of if mama ain't happy, then nobody's happy. As a a son of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to be very blunt with you this morning, my wife's happiness is not my priority. Her holiness is my priority. 
But now understand this. If you find a, a home where a husband and wife are both followers of Jesus Christ, or let's just say the husband is a follower of Jesus Christ and he is chosen, I'm going to put my wife first and her holiness is my priority. And that husband is very humbly, lovingly shepherding his wife, his children. You show me that environment and I'll show you a wife that's happy. Now, is her happiness rooted in her circumstances and that everything's going the way that she wants it and she's getting everything in life that she wants? Probably not. But is there a greater joy found in pursuing holiness? Absolutely there is. And to know that someone else in their life has made your holiness, your pursuit of the living God, that they've made that your priority, that changes things. And see, ultimately, it's not about either one of our happiness. It's about everyone's holiness. The only relationship that the scriptures teach us, again, to repeat this, that is a reflection of Jesus Christ and his church is the covenant marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And this is what Paul is really driving at here. Look back with me in verse 31. Paul quotes Genesis that we read last week. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. And right here, Paul blows the top off of everything. This mystery is profound. And by the way, I'm saying that all of this refers to Christ and the church. Here's what Paul just laid down. God didn't dream up marriage and institute this whole thing. And then years later, it dawns on somebody like Paul, wait a minute, this kind of parallels Jesus and the church. Brilliant. I should share this. No, no, no. God made marriage to be a foreshadowing, to be a reflection of Christ and the church. It doesn't like sort of parallel it. God created it to be the picture. This is the profound mystery of marriage that Paul's talking about. God made marriage to reflect Christ and the church. Marriage paints a picture of Christ's love for his church and his church's love and pursuit of him. What is marriage supposed to do? It's supposed to display the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the profound mystery. And here in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul also tells us there is great purpose in marriage as well. What is the purpose? It's that if you're a child of God and your spouse is a child of God, your marriage is to glorify God in everything. Because as we love one another, as we serve one another, as we forgive one another, we are, yes, an imperfect, but we are a sweet reflection of the love of Christ to a watching world. And believe me when I tell you, the world is watching. 
Ephesians 5, though, also gives us great, great promise for marriage. Because, see, while we have two people who were both marred by sin, we also have two people who have been saved by grace. And so my marriage ought to be a constant reminder to me of the hope that I have in Christ. And so when things begin getting tough in marriage, and they're, they're going to get tough, where would Paul suggest that we turn? Where do we turn? Do we turn to shopping? Things feel bad and I'm mad at him. I'm just going to go spend his money. Do we go deer hunting? I can't shoot her. I'll go shoot Bambi. <laughs> uh, do, do we get on the phone and start telling our friend? Do we turn to alcohol? Do we turn to porn? Do we turn back to our parents? No. We don't turn to any of those things. We turn to Christ and we turn to one another. And it will require inordinate, unachievable amounts of humility to do so. But that is why it cannot be done without the Spirit of God. You can't live a Spirit-filled marriage without the Spirit. It won't work. Friends, when we fight for our marriage, we fight for the name of Jesus Christ. So I say to you, no matter what is going on within your marriage, that you stand your ground and that you know the enemy wants to destroy it. Don't let that happen. What an incredible privilege and responsibility that we have to reflect the love of our Lord and Savior through the way that we love one another. And nowhere can this happen more powerfully than through a spirit-filled marriage. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, no matter where we are relationally, Lord, we pray that as your people, Lord, our desire would be to be emptied of ourselves, that we would put one another first. Lord, in our home, in our marriages, Lord, in our relationships with our children, with our neighbors, with our friends. Lord Jesus, that we might live, that we might love, that we might lead the way that you do. Lord, we pray that this morning anywhere within our hearts and lives where we need brokenness and repentance... Holy Spirit, that you would bring it. Lord, we pray that in any relationship, whether it be our marriage or any relationship for that matter, 
where there is brokenness and division, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom, Lord, to seek restoration. And Lord Jesus, that all of this would be driven from within us, from the desire to bring you glory and honor. In just a moment as we respond to the Lord, um, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, lift praise to Him. But if you're here today and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, some of our leaders, um, our pastors are going to be in the back at the tables. They would love to talk with you pray with you. If you need to come and come alone, come with a friend, come with your spouse, if you need to come to the foot of the cross or the steps and pray, we invite you to come. But take this opportunity over these next moments to acknowledge what the Spirit of God is speaking to you and leading in you. And may your response and my response to him be, yes, Lord. Lord Jesus, in these moments as we worship you with our mouths, we pray that we would do that with our lives, with obedient hearts. May you be lifted up and honored and glorified in this place. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.